Welcome to our Painesville Assembly of God podcast. Our desire is to connect people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If this message touches your heart, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at info at or visit PainesvilleAG.com. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to your faith. To continue uh, the series that we're in in the book of Nehemiah. And so, if you have a copy of God's Word, you want to follow along in the app notes, you download the Church Center app under the More tab. There are sermon notes that you can follow along. Uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. Nehemiah chapter 5. When I say the word conflict, what comes to mind? I think immediately some of you, your blood pressure just went up just a little bit. <laughs> I think nobody likes conflict, right? Conflict happens in relationships. Sometimes it happens in marriages. It happens in families. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, it happens in the church. It happens at different levels of society. Uh, it was something as we've been in our casket empty Bible study on Wednesday nights, we jumped into and we saw this past week about relationship ruptured when sin entered into the world, that it ruptured our relationship with God, but it also began to impact uh, Adam and even their marriage relationship. And in chapter 4, uh, with Cain and Abel, uh, and uh, the discord between the two brothers when one murdered the other, uh, conflict is one of those things that, that happens because we live in a, a sinful world and happens because we've got people that uh, have various uh, opinions and, uh, and, and, and various views on how things ought to be done and what ought to be done. And, uh, and so conflict is just one of those things that sometimes can happen. In fact, I heard the story of an old Englishman. He was uh, seated on a train between two ladies who happened to, to be bickering about the window. One claimed that if the window was not open, she'd die of heat stroke. And the other said, if you open that window, I'm going to die of pneumonia. And they bickered back and forth as this man sat in between the two. The ladies later called the conductor and began to talk about the conflict they were having, and he was not sure how to, how to handle and, and what to do about the conflict that he listened. And finally, out of frustration, the English gentleman in the middle spoke up. He said, here's what you do. First, open the window. That'll kill the one. Then close the window. That'll kill the other, and we'll have peace. <laughs> Peace, right? <laughs> Conflicts are inevitable here in a fallen world, and there is a scriptural way that we are taught on how to deal with conflict. The Bible is so practical, and it gives us some, some pictures of how to deal with that. And so as we look at Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to see that there is conflict. They're in this building, rebuilding program, rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, and conflict begins to, to arise. Let's review a little bit of how we got to this point. In Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah is in Persia. And while he's there, he's a cupbearer to the king. He holds almost like a secret service position. He's protective of the king, what he eats and what he drinks. And he's in the king's presence. And while he's there, his brother who went to Jerusalem with the first set of exiles comes back and begins to share with him that the walls of Jerusalem are still broken down. The city is still in disrepair. And we learned that part of the reason was is that there were people that were against the rebuilding of that city. That city had been destroyed under Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, who came in and destroyed the city because the people of Jerusalem stopped following Jesus. 
The people of Judah stopped worshiping the Lord. Idol worship became a part of their hearts. And as a result of that, God's judgment and his protective hand lifted. And Babylon came in. And for 70 years, the people were in exile until Persia took over. And King Cyrus released the people back. But there was opposition to the rebuilding, and as a, as a part of that, God, God's name was under reproach, and the people were without protection. And when Nehemiah heard the word, he was cut to the heart and began to fast and pray about what to do with it. And in chapter 2, God opened up a door for Nehemiah to be able to share with the king at that time, Artaxerxes, who had made the decree to stop the building of the wall, but opened up the door for Nehemiah to have his favor and the favor of God to return and rebuild this process. But as we learned, there was opposition from without. And last week, we talked about guys like Sanballat and Tobiah. Tobiah and Gesher, the Arab, who did not want to see the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt. And we saw that, that they began to sow some attacks from the outside. How many of you know that whenever God's people have a mind to work, Satan has a mind to wreck? Whenever God's people have a mind to work, to work for what the Lord is calling them to do, Satan will oppose that work. And that's what we began to see. There was a tactic that, that they tried. And the, the tactic was to, to begin to, to, to cause derision among them, to begin to, to chide them and, and, and to ridicule them and to put them down and say, what do you think you're doing? What do you think you're doing? And then last week, we talked about how the enemy's tactic was to discourage. The people were tired. The work was overwhelming, and, and the attacks and the threats kept coming, and they didn't feel like they could, they could continue the work, and discouragement began to set in, and Nehemiah's response was to pray. It was to pray, and then his response was to protect the breaches in the wall, and his response was to partner and pull the people together with strategic partner areas in the vulnerable positions. The next tactic was danger. Their lives were threatened and the opposition of Sanballat and Tobiah came and said, we're going to kill you when nobody's looking. We're going to come in and sweep down on you. And fear began to set in. But again, Nehemiah wasn't quitting. He said, let's resist this. And he began to say, one of you will work and the other you will hold a sword. And in one hand, you'll hold a sword. In the other hand, you'll hold a trowel. And together, we'll stay in the city for 24 hours a day. And we'll keep working on the wall and defend ourselves against the enemy. We'll rally together. And so when the outside opposition was unsuccessful, how many of you know that Satan doesn't end his attacks? When you're beginning a work of the Lord, how many of you know that there might be outside opposition that comes? But oftentimes one of the greatest threats comes from within. Division within. When people get fighting each other, they become ineffective in the work that God calls them to do. Mark 3.25, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand. That's what Jesus said. In Nehemiah chapter 5, we discover that there is some internal conflict that begins to threaten the completion of the wall. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 1. This is how it opens now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. Against their Jewish brothers. 
Do you see what we're talking about is not an outside attack. This is not about Sanballat or Tobiah or Gesher or anyone from the outside. Now, all of a sudden, there is some problems that have developed in relationships between their Jewish brothers and sisters. There was an outcry against them. You remember that they had been facing those outside attacks. And in response to that, Nehemiah called for the people who were working on the wall to stay in the city 24 hours a day, night and day, to work back to back and to defend against the enemy. Well, part of that problem, that project, as we would see, took about 52 days to complete. And this was a voluntary position. This was not a paid position. There were no wages being earned. And this was very hard on family. Solving one problem that they experienced had led to another. The result was they didn't have time to cultivate their gardens. They didn't have time to work in their own fields and raise their own food. In the following verses, we see four complaints and an outcry that led to this internal conflict. Nehemiah Chapter 5, let's read verses 2 to 5 together. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were those who said, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we borrowed money for the king's tax. For the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children is as their children or as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. What are these four conflicts that they're raising here? What are the four complaints? The, what is causing the outcry in the internal conflict as they begin, as they continue this work that God has, has put before them, the work of rebuilding the wall? First is food storage. Verse 2 highlights that there are some families, and in those days, families were large. Some of you come from large families, but they did not have enough food to feed their families. While they had been tending to the wall, their own farmlands were, were not being tended to, were not producing. And, and then verse 3 also tells us at this time, there happened to be a famine in the land. Resources were short. They were in short supply and inflation seemed to be a problem. And, and there were people who were hungry saying, we don't have enough to eat and we don't have enough to feed our families. Here we are doing the work that, that we've agreed to. And, and it's not a problem with the work. It's a good work. The problem is that we don't have enough to feed our family. Economic stress. As a side note, the people were doing the work of the Lord. And yet God had also allowed there to be a time of a famine in the land. Can I just, as a side note, just let you know that sometimes even when you're doing God's work, it doesn't exempt you from the outside problems of living in a broken world. That, that sometimes there are pressures and stress that come just from living in a broken world. And they come even when you are doing the work that God has called you to do. Jesus said in John 14, in this life, you will have trouble. Friends, trouble comes. It rains on the just and the unjust alike. Sometimes trials come and hardships come. And those folks, the first outcry, we don't have enough food to feed our families. We don't have enough food to feed our families. There were others that also were experiencing this economic hardship. 
they were over-mortgaged in their homes. Verse 3, there were also those who were said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. There were some that were in financial bondage. They were using the equity of their homes to be able to feed their families. They had food for their families, but it cost them because they happened to have homes that they could, they could mortgage. And they were, they were over-mortgaged in the equity and getting deeper and deeper in debt just to put food on the table. Thirdly, there were those that were suffering under high taxes. Oh, here we go. Taxes, right? How many of you received your W-2s or your 1099s or your whatever, right? This is the season, right? Here we go. Uh, April 15th will be here before you know it. Nehemiah 5, 4 says this, and there were those who said, we borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Understand that Persia had allowed Nehemiah to go back and Nehemiah had said, I'm going to need, I'm going to need some things from the, from the king's forest to be able to, to, to rebuild the wall. We're going to need supplies. And the king gave him supplies and sent him with a whole army and an entourage to, to come. You might remember that when they came, but how many of you know Persia is going to get theirs? They're not sending Nehemiah to lead this effort without paying for it. And so the king's taxes became high, and there were people that could not pay the tax. The Jews had to borrow money, and they kept finding themselves deeper and deeper and deeper in debt. The fourth is they were selling their children as slaves to pay their debts. And in this Western culture, we can't fathom something like this. But it was a common thing that, that if you were not able to, 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 to have food or you did not have land that you could exchange, that you could indenture your children as servants. With those men who were working on the wall, in order for them to continue to do that, in order for them to continue to live economically, and they were selling their farms, the next thing that they did was they began to sell their children into slavery to begin to, to work off of those, those debts. It was a common practice. And while these problems were very real, the underlying root problem that was causing the division in which we see the outrage in Nehemiah was that some were exploiting their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. There were some that were exploiting this. They, they had those funds and, and they, were, they were wealthy. They were able to do it, but they were exploiting their poor Jewish brothers and sisters in a time of crisis taking advantage of them and capitalizing on their misfortunes. Wealthy Jews, again, loaning money, and they weren't just loaning the money, but they were charging interest on top of that money and, and taking their land and their children as collateral. And that, that might have been a legal practice in the Persian Empire. It was not a biblical practice. While the Persians had no such law against such things, Exodus 22:25 says this, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. That was God's law. That's what God had spoken through Moses. That was what was to govern the relationships among the Jews. It's reinforced in Deuteronomy 23, 19. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. In other words, don't take advantage of your brothers and sisters. 
Don't take advantage of your brothers and sisters. On top of that, they could have people work for them, but they were not to enslave them. We see throughout Scripture that that was another element where you were, you were not able to enslave another Jew. If someone was poor and had to work for you, you could not make them your slave. And the reason for that was because you as a people were slaves in Egypt, and you know how that was. And God delivered you. Don't do it to your Jewish brothers and sisters. Yet, the people were brave. Breaking God's law, there was injustice, and they were contributing to the hardship of their brothers and sisters. There was a conflict between the haves and the have-nots right in the middle of this building program, and it threatened to shut it down. Listen, God is just, right? God is righteous, isn't he? God loves the poor. And he does not approve of taking advantage of the poor. This is what Proverbs 19, 17 says. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Understand that this is the understanding behind it, that God is the provider. And when you help out another brother or sister, when you lend to them, you are really lending to the Lord. So don't take advantage of them. Don't take advantage of them. The bottom line is the root cause of this conflict was greed and selfishness. It was greed and selfishness. In fact, this is the biblical principle that we see throughout Scripture. Whether it's a conflict in your family or a conflict in a relationship, maybe a marriage relationship, maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend relationship, maybe it's uh, in, in, in your workplace or a school or even in the church, the bottom line is conflict more often than not is caused due to selfishness. James 4.1, what is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? That's what scripture says. The evil desires at war within you. If you continue to read James chapter 4 and you follow those verses, you will see that oftentimes conflict begins because there are certain things that we want and we like Burger King or McDonald's want to have it our way. Right? We live in a have it our way society. I want it my way. I want it the way I want it, the way I see it, what I like, the way I want to do it. And those kinds of things lead to conflict. It sparked this, this, this breaking of God's law. And so Nehemiah is concerned. And from his response, we're going to couple this with a passage in the New Testament that, that came much later when Jesus began to taught about resolving conflict in Matthew chapter 18. But we learned some powerful lessons about resolving conflict. So we're going to get practical today. And if you're facing conflict, whether it's in uh, a marriage relationship or, or whether it's in a family relationship or at work or, or wherever it is when it comes to conflict, the Bible, the Bible talks about a way in which we handle conflict. How do we do that? What do we do? Well, first, take the problem seriously. Take the problem seriously. I think a lot of us want to ignore conflict. We don't like conflict. We're conflict averse. So when there's conflict, we would much rather just deny that there's a problem. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? Some of you are going, yep, that's me. I've been there. I don't like to deal with it. If I can, I just, I don't want to do that. <coughs> Sometimes. When it's something serious, ignoring it doesn't help the situation. 
Nehemiah 5, 6 says this. This is his initial response. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Nehemiah did not ignore the problem, nor did he ignore his emotional response to what he was hearing. He was angry. It says he was very angry. Is it wrong to get angry? No, I'm I'm going to let you know it's not wrong to get angry. In fact, we're made in the very image of God. We have emotions as people. We were made with emotions. and, And those emotions are a part of who we are. In fact, when you read through scripture, you see that, that God himself got angry. Anger itself is a normal emotion. Anger is, is something, especially at injustice or when there's something that we feel has been taken from us, that emotion of anger is something that oftentimes we do experience. However, there is a right and a wrong way to express anger. There's a right and a wrong way when it comes to expressing when we're angry. There is an anger that is sinful, and there is an anger that is righteous. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. Notice it says, be angry. It doesn't say you should never be angry. No, there are things we should get angry about. And in this situation, the people were breaking God's law and they were hurting one another. They were hurting their relationship with God by their actions, breaking God's law, and they were hurting one another in the process. That is a reason to be angry. That's a reason to be angry, but sin not. We see it in Moses when he's coming down from Mount Sinai and and he hears all of this celebrating going on and he's wondering what is happening. And as he goes down, he sees that his fellow Israelites who had just been brought out of Egypt by the Lord God have fashioned a golden calf and they are dancing around in idolatry. And here they are worshiping a golden calf shortly after God had said, this is my law and the first one, do not have any other gods. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only and do not make any other idols. And right away, he's gone for a little while up meeting with the Lord and comes down and the people are breaking God's law. And Moses was so angry that the ten commandments that he had, he broke, threw down and broke. In fact, his his response gets gets a little crazy. We see Jesus with righteous indignation when he comes into the temple and he sees merchants in the temple who are, who are, who are, uh, who are overcharging for sacrifices that, that, that need to be offered, who are overtaxing and money changing in, in ways where they're making a profit on this area of worship and making it difficult for people who have come into the temple to worship and to be able to get right with God. And he, he has this righteous indignation and he turns over the tables. And in verse 13 of Matthew 21, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. There's a righteous indignation. There is an outcry that comes. Being angry is not a sin. However, how we express that anger is a sin. And at times we have to check our hearts in what we are getting angry about. What are we getting angry about? You see, God's people were, 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 were mistreating one another. It was breaking the unity and the fellowship. It was breaking God's law. And so 
Nehemiah was, was angry. Nehemiah was angry. He was angry at sin, but before reacting, we see step two. What does Nehemiah do? Secondly, he exercised self-control. He exercised self-control. Look at verse seven. I love the first part of this. I took counsel with myself. I took counsel with myself. And then it says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. Before we get into that next part, which we're going to <clears throat> in just a moment, what, what I love is the phrase, I took counsel with myself. And, and, and really what that's saying is I didn't, I didn't fly off the handle and go blast them. And, 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 and what they were doing was wrong. But in my own response, I didn't go and blast them. I didn't go and, and just emotionally react. I took some time to cool off. I took some time to think about some things. I took some time to pray through some things. I, I prayed through my reaction. I took counsel with myself. Proverbs 16, 32 says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and whoever rules his spirit than he who takes a city. There is this area of self-control, this area in which you and I are responsible for our reactions. There may be something righteous that we get angry about, but you and I are responsible for how we respond and react. And wisdom says, I will take time to gather my emotions and I will allow that anger to be put in a way in which it can be responded to in a healthy way. In a healthy way, in a self-controlled response. James 1, 19 and 20, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Impulsive anger leads to trouble. And the antidote is here to slow down. To slow down. To be quick to listen. I often heard this phrase, God gives you two ears and one mouth for a reason. So you can listen twice as much as you speak. Some of you have heard that before. It allows you to gain control over your emotions so that they can be expressed. Be angry, but sin not. Thirdly, Nehemiah followed the biblical principles of confrontation. The biblical principles of confrontation. It's easy to, to, to allow ourselves to take time, get cooled off, and then say, well, maybe I overreacted. And sometimes that's the case. But there are other times where it's still something that needs to be dealt with and responded to. And so Nehemiah shows us a process of how we ought to deal with the problem that, that we have, the conflict that we see, the struggle that we see, the, the unrighteousness that we see, or something that needs to be confronted or the difficult conversation that needs to be had. And what we see is, is that Nehemiah happens to have these rich and powerful people who have been mistreating their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. And so what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah begins to, he begins to address the situation first. He addresses it privately. Let's go back again to verse seven. I took counsel with myself and then look what it says. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. 
Then following this, and we're going to get to this in just a moment, it says, I held a great assembly against them. We don't know whether those involved, whether this was a single meeting, whether he went one by one and began to share with some of those who were mistreating their brothers and sisters. We're not exactly sure if he took a couple of trusted leaders with him, but we see a biblical pattern of conflict is to begin first with a personal and a private conversation with the person that has offended you or the person in which you are angry with. The person that you have a conflict with, the biblical resolution is to begin first in a very personal and private conversation. Matthew 18, this is where this part comes in. This is what Jesus shares. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. While Nehemiah uh, that we have here did not have this teaching from Jesus, he seems to have followed this pattern of private conversation before a public confrontation. He didn't succeed in private. We don't know. Apparently, we don't believe that he had. In fact, uh, there's a a, a couple of commentators that, that believe at this point that there's no recorded response from the nobles at this point. That he went and I talked with them, but they didn't necessarily respond to the private conversation. And so what did Nehemiah do? He moved to a public confrontation. He called a great assembly, it said in verse 7. And he began to spell out the problem. In verses 5 to 11, he points out how their brothers and sisters had been redeemed, how he had redeemed them, how they'd come out of exile, they had been free, and now they've gone back under servitude because of what had happened. They were selling their brothers, selling themselves into slavery because of this. And, they, they, and, and then he tells them, listen, you're exacting interest. That We know that's not what we're supposed to do. And he begins to confront the problem and states that their behavior is not good because in verse 9 he says that the fellow that that others looking on the outside would mock the Jews the Lord's name would be scorned because of the mistreatment of their own people now also Nehemiah teaches us something here he uses the word we we Just as he did when he was confessing the sins of the nation in Nehemiah chapter 1. Just as he did in Nehemiah chapter 2, we learn when he came back and said, we are in trouble. These walls have been broken down. We, and including himself, as not only a part of the problem, but a part of the solution. And there are some that have taken this to say, well, Nehemiah was doing this himself And there are others that say, no, he was following the pattern that he's followed all the way through and that he's including himself and he is going to be part of the solution, not just part of the problem, but part of the solution. Let's be honest. Nobody likes conflict or confrontation, right? But at times, confrontation and conflict are necessary to be able to get things back in alignment with what God desires, his righteous standard. And the reaction of those who had been charged by by wrongly charging interest or enslaving their fellow Jews was humility and change. Verse 12, then they said, and this is the nobles, this is those he was bringing charges against. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. 
And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. While that is not always the response to confrontation and conflict, while you can follow the biblical pattern for how to resolve conflict and and it doesn't always, you will find more success when you follow God's plan and it will effectively glorify the Lord. Finally, Nehemiah set a personal example, not just hearing about the need and confronting it, but Nehemiah became a part of the solution. He set a personal example of godliness. Here's Nehemiah 5, 14 and 15. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took for themselves the daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. What Nehemiah says is, I'm going to be a part of the solution. I hear the outcry. I hear what's happening. So guess what? I'm personally not going to take any of the taxes that I could take. I've been, I've been given authority as the governor over this area. We don't know when that switched. If that was part of when Nehemiah came to rebuild the temple, we're not, or rebuild the walls, we're not sure. But we do know that Nehemiah said, you know what? There are people, my fellow brothers and sisters that are hurting, and I'm not going to take any taxes from them. I'm not going to receive any of that. I'm not taking any of that silver. In fact, out of my own pocket, I am going to feed those that are at my table and those who come. You can see that in, in verse 18. And that was not cheap. He had 150 Jews and officials at his table daily besides those who would come and visit from surrounding nations. And to feed them required, as it says here, one ox, six choice sheep, plus poultry and wine every day. That's expensive. But Nehemiah absorbed the expense to himself to be a part of the solution that he was requiring and encouraging of the others who had been taking advantage of their brothers and sisters. He set a personal example of sacrifice, self-sacrifice and care. And as a result, the work continued on the wall. Verse 16, I also persevered in the work on this wall and acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Again, Nehemiah personally continued the work on the wall. He offered personal sacrifice and he set the proper example. And in that preserved the unity of the people and the work on the wall continued. Friends, while there are enemies that attack the work of the Lord that come from the outside like Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, perhaps the greater danger to the work that God has called us to do as believers and to his church comes because of conflict within, because of how we treat or mistreat one another, because of how we, we, we act sometimes in selfish ways or we don't respond when we've been uh, offended or when we're upset or we've been hurt. We don't respond in a biblical manner, but instead we respond in ways that that, that scripture says cause more division. And so I want to encourage you today that the work of preserving what the Lord wants to do, the unity of the faith needs to follow both Nehemiah's example and the principles that Jesus laid out in Matthew chapter 18 about resolving conflict and differences. 
You see, the result was is that the work continued and the people came together in unity. And as we're going to see in a few chapters, we're going to see that they completed the wall in record time because they worked together and they were willing to preserve the unity among them. Vance Havner said this, and I love it, snowflakes are frail, but if enough of them stick together, they can stop traffic. Boy, do we know that here in Northeast Ohio, right? Right? They're frail, but if they stick together, they can stop traffic. There is power in unity. There is blessing in unity. When we come together, but in order for us to preserve the unity, it means that we have to biblically, we have to handle conflict biblically. We have to handle it biblically. We have to walk through that and allow the Lord to bring healing in our lives and to bring healing in our relationships and to help us to walk in the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And when God's people do that, we don't allow the enemy to divide us from within and the work that God has called us to do can continue. Friends, let's allow the work to be in our heart to bring healing and to walk in biblical love when resolving our conflict and differences. Worship team, will you come? And as we close today, we're going to do so with a time of communion. We're going to do so with a time of communion. So as you came in, uh, the elements of communion were in the back. Those of you that are watching online, go ahead and, and, and grab um, some bread, juice, something to represent the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and again, here at Painesville Assembly of God, you don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion. You have to be a member of his church. It means that you have, to, uh, you have to have said, Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner and that I'm in need of your grace. I'm in need of your salvation. And you with confidence to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and can say, I've been born again. And with that, you're a part of the body. You see, one of the things that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage that we often read about communion is, is that there was some conflict going on within the Corinthian church that Paul had to address. And in his writing and addressing these conflicts that were happening Right in the middle of that, he begins to talk about what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the night in which he was betrayed. In fact, this is kind of leading up to verse 23, back it up to verse 18. 1 Corinthians 11, 18 says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Paul is saying, I've heard there's divisions among you. There was some, some selfishness that was going on. There were some people that, that were not caring for their brothers and sisters when it came to the table of the Lord. There was some division that was happening within the church. And from here, Paul begins to lead them through the message of the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and leads them in receiving communion together. How to handle that meal, what to do, some guidelines for that. And in the verses that follow, he says, whoever therefore eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And when it comes to examining ourselves, it's examining our own hearts. 
It's examining our own hearts. Are there hurts that we've not allowed the Lord to heal? Are there offenses that we've not allowed the Lord to work in us so that we can deal with those things in a biblical way? Are there selfishness that we need to crucify in ourselves so that that there can be unity within the body and unity among brothers and sisters in Christ? You see, Jesus came to heal and Jesus came to save and Jesus came to reconcile and Jesus came to do that in his church. When we come together for this meal, we need to say, Lord, expose any actions that have been self-serving in my heart. Any actions in my heart that have been self-serving, any actions in my heart that have been sinful, any actions in my heart that have not only caused me not to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also that have impacted your command to love my neighbor as myself. So today, as we begin to come to the table of the Lord today, let's bow our hearts right now and let's ask the Holy Spirit to search us right now. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and say, Lord, is there any wicked way in me? Is there anything in me that is not, that is not where you desire it to be? And can we just take a few moments and confess those sins to the Lord? And the Lord puts on your heart that there is reconciliation that is needed between you and another brother or sister. Will you just begin to allow the Lord to just work inside of your heart to position you to where you can respond in a biblical way to allow there to be some healing in your heart and also that you would have the courage to go and be reconciled to your brother or sister in the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Search our hearts, Lord. Search our hearts, Lord. Search our hearts, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you're encouraged by this message. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, visit PainesvilleAG.com.